come on a journey with a cinephile. Episode number 37 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., recording here out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode, now I know I originally had another movie that I was going to watch, but I think I'm going to postpone that for a week only because the 1950s movie, the only one that I could find that I did watch, is The Fall of the House of Usher. Now, since this movie, of course, is you know kind of an old gothic house type movie, I decided that the 2020 release that I was going to cover on this episode instead is going to be Relic, which kind of has some similar themes with the setting of the movie. So that is going to be, you know, the journey through the aughts thing that I'm doing here where I have, you know, the 50s and the 20s are being covered here. And then for mini reviews on this episode, I have Let the Right One In. That is the original one. And then I have The Ruins, Trick or Treat, The Strangers, Lake Mungo, and Eden Lake as the rest of the reviews that I will be covering in that section. Aside from that, I want to thank you for coming on this journey with me. And first, I'm going to kick you over to my first musical break. Thank you. 
first mini review of this week it will be let the right one in from 2008 this is directed by Tomas Elfredson and it comes from the novel and the screenplay are both from John Ejvid Ludquist and then this stars Kari Hedebrandt, Lena Leanderson and Per Ragnar this is a crime drama fantasy horror romance film from Sweden this is currently sitting on a 7.9 on IMDb and a 4.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis is, Oscar, an overlooked and bullied boy, finds love and revenge through Eli, a beautiful but peculiar girl. Now I have to admit, I saw the remake before seeing this original one. I knew at the time of seeing the other one that this one did exist, and all I'd ever heard about was how good it was. And I liked the remake, so I was really interested to see this one for a while, and I finally got a chance to see it last winter as I was watching movies that are you know winter based during December and I have to say now this is the second time that I've seen this movie and it's thanks to the summer challenge series over on the podcast under the stairs as this is one of the years that I was selected in for 2008 for the people's council now this one we really follow Oscar who is Hedenbrandt where he is a bullied kid and the bully that's really behind most of everything that's happening is Connie who is Patrick Rydmark and they're really kind of cruel with some of the things that they do to him. So he's kind of lonely and just trying to find somebody to connect with. And he finds this when Ali, who is Leanderson, moves in next door to them with, I'm assuming, kind of her father, who is Heineken, who is Ragnar. Now, when they first move in, though, we see something's up as they put up things in the window. And then we just soon learn that she is a vampire but I like that this movie kind of takes us in a whole different way is that they're looking at the fact that we have Oscar. He doesn't have a lot of friends. He's quite lonely and bullied, as I said. So he's somewhat of an outcast. And he's also a vocarious reader as he is, you know, reading newspapers and is up on like true crime because of it. Now, his parents are divorced or at least no longer together. So there's that aspect that he's growing up in a broken home. Now, when he meets Ali, she changes all of this as he starts to take like a workout class to get stronger and she actually inspires confidence in him and wants him to stand up to his bullies. Now on the other side we have a Lee who is an outcast for a different reason. She's been 12 years old for a very long time and knows that she can't have friends in the normal sense so she does try to keep Oscar at a distance. 
Now, the longer that they start to hang out, the more that she kind of lets her guard down. And they, she ends up wanting to be with him as well. But she knows that she really can't be with him in the traditional sense. And it makes me wonder about the relationship with her and Haken. Like, how old were they when they came into contact? As he sees her more as a child, where Oscar sees her more as a mate, only because he's looking at her as another 12-year-old. Then we also have an interesting dynamic here as we get to meet... They almost seem like gangsters of this guy named Lackey and his crew. They hang out in the local cafe and they end up having things get changed when one of their crew gets attacked by Ali. And then this also happens with Lack's girlfriend of Virginia. And then we get to actually see some of the rules of the vampire, which is very traditional in this movie. And I kind of dug that as well, where like sunlight hurts them and they need to be invited in in order to or something bad will happen to them being vampires and everything like that. And this movie is definitely a slow burn type movie, but I don't feel like it bothered me. And I thought it moves at a very good pace. And this second viewing definitely reaffirmed that for me. And I also think that the acting is very good. Hayden Brandt being a child, I think he plays this role very subdued and it actually works for me. And he is, you know, a product of divorce, so he keeps to himself. He's a little bit off and picked on, so that doesn't help him either. And he's just really searching for somebody to accept him. And I also like Lee Anderson though. She's playing a vampire that has been alive for much longer and it is tough though because she's a child still. I like that the movie dubbed her voiceover with someone older as that adds another dimension to the character for me and I think she does a solid job at portraying this. As for the effects, I like how they actually hide quite a bit of them. There is no physical changes of the vampire and I like that subtle approach to it. There's a fair amount of blood and I thought that looked good. It also has good con color and consistency. The attack scenes that we do get are very practical and look quite real as well. Now there's a scene where Ali comes into Oscar's apartment without being invited in, which was great. And I really like actually seeing what would happen if they do like not get that invitation. We also get to see what happens with these vampires when they're hit by direct sunlight. The only drawback I can say would be there is a scene with cats where they attack somebody. This was done with CGI and I wasn't the biggest fan because it just doesn't look good. But the cinematography though is on point with how they frame shots and the use of mirrors I was also a big fan of. Now this is just a really good movie in my opinion. I was originally at a 9 with this, but after the second viewing, I can see there's really no flaws that I have that would bring the rating down. So after the second viewing, I've come in with a 10 out of 10 on this movie. And for my second review for this week is going to be The Ruins from 2008. This is directed by Carter Smith, and it comes from a screenplay as well as the novel written by Scott B. Smith. And then this stars Sean Ashmore, Jenna Malone and Jonathan Tucker. This is a fantasy horror thriller with a co-production from the United States, Germany, and Australia. This is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a group of friends whose leisurely Mexican holiday takes a turn for the worst when they, along with a fellow tourist, embark on a remote archaeological dig in the jungle where something evil lives among the ruins. Now this is a film that I first saw in college from a recommendation by my sister, so a shout out to Allison. I picked up a copy and was pleasantly surprised that I enjoyed it. I hadn't seen it since then and it wasn't until the Summer Challenge series for the 2000s over on the podcast Under the Stairs that I finally gave this another viewing. It is interesting as well as I just listened to an audio commentary from Bo Ransdale a week prior or so over on the Legion Podcast's Patreon page. but. Kind of going along with what this movie is talking about is that we have a group of friends who is, it's Stacy, who is Laura Ramsey, is dating Eric, who is Sean Ashmore, 
and then they have a friend who is Jeff, who is Jonathan Tucker, as he is a, he's going off to medical school soon, and his girlfriend is Amy, who is Jenna Malone. Now, we see on this trip that the three besides Jeff all like to kind of drink and have a good time, where he is more reserved, and when he gets the opportunity when they meet another tourist who is Matthias, or Matthias, or I believe was like how they pronounce it in the movie, who is Joe Anderson, he's from Germany, and his friends kind of abandoned him, so he's looking for people to go with him to this archaeological dig that is a Mayan temple that has just been discovered. Now when they go there though, they get trapped on top of it by some natives in the area, and it turns out that there is something deep inside of it that might be much worse than the natives that are surrounding them. But what I like about this is that we have an interesting little thing here is that I love history as well as kind of like temples and everything. Now I'm not up on my like mythology or like the worshiping practices of the Mayans, but I'm not necessarily sure that they did ritualistic sacrifices of humans. I could be wrong there, so if I do, I do apologize about that. But I'm gonna put up a little bit of a spoiler warning here if you don't know anything about this movie. But there is a plant that has evolved into kind of a man-eating plant, which I can, you know, believe that this could happen in nature as, I mean, we have a Venus flytrap or the pitcher plant, which I know both of those eat insects, but what is stopping if they are doing sacrifices, you know, and these plants have evolved where they're eating blood and, you know, eating people and stuff like that, that I think it could really, you know, possibly evolve somewhere, especially somewhere as isolated as we get here, as we learn that this temple is, you know, not on any of the maps or anything like that. We also get to see that this plant is somewhat parasitic, which I also thought was a kind of cool thing to play with here, is that we see it in some people's skin, and we also see that it kind of will cling to people when they've infected you like a moss, and I believe that is partially going after the blood, but it's just that this plant is relentless in trying to, you know, get its nutrients, which it gets from people, and I also like that it's also brought up that there are no animals or, like, the birds don't even land on this temple anymore. Kind of a cool concept that they're playing with here. I thought the effects were pretty solid across the board. We do get a blend of practical as well as CGI. I thought the practical effects were really good. We get an amputation scene that had me cringing. And we also get to see that the plant that I was referring to where it's like parasitic, needing that to be removed, that made me cringe at one scene. And it does have a pretty cool one where we see that one of our characters is starting to go a little bit crazy about everything. Now we do get some CGI, which doesn't actually look all that bad. It's mostly for when the plants are moving and things to that effect. thought the cinematography was pretty well done. thought the acting was pretty solid across the board. Where I think that Tucker in his role here as Jeff does really well as he comes off as arrogant, but he is going off to medical school soon. And it almost feels like this group of people has just been around each other so much that they're kind of sick of each other. And that being stuck together like this, they're getting on each other's nerves. So I thought that played well. Uh, Malone is interesting that when she's drunk, she's fun in the life of the party, but when she's not, she's kind of a negative Nancy, and I know people like her, and she just plays it naturally. Ramsey is quite attractive. We get to see her completely nude, so that was kind of, you know, a thank you movie moment there. And then she just has an interesting dynamic when she's trapped in the temple. Ashmore is another character that I think is just solid in everything that I've pretty much seen him in. And the same could be said for Anderson, which I thought he did a pretty well job. I don't really think I've seen him in anything else, but I thought his performance was good. So aside from that, I don't really have anything else I want to delve into in this mini-review, so my rating here was a 7 out of 10. And then next up is Trick or Treat from 2000, and it, it says 2007, but I know this was released in 2008. This is written and directed by Michael Daughtry. This stars Anna Paquin, Brian Cox, and Dylan Baker. This is a comedy horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd. 
with the synopsis being five interwoven stories that occur on Halloween, an everyday high school principal has a secret life as a serial killer, a college virgin might have just met the guy for her, a group of teenagers pull a mean prank, a woman who loathes the night has to contend with her holiday-obsessed husband, and a mean old man meets his match with a dynamic supernatural trick-or-treater. Now this one isn't a traditional anthology type film because we really don't have like a wraparound story but what i really like about this is that we have as the synopsis says these five tales are interwoven in a way where i was thoroughly impressed with it now i remember back in college when this film was released and i really wanted to see it but i never got around to it until i got into podcasts and i heard people talking about how great this film was so i had to give it a chance and then I was glad that I did, as I really did enjoy it that first time. And I'm also giving it a second watch now as part of the Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. Now, for me, I really like when my anthology films have a wraparound story, but I actually think this one works perfectly without it. Now, my favorite of them is the one that is really pulling a lot of homages from the Little Red Riding Hood story, as we have a girl who is Anna Paquin, and her name, her character name is Lori. Now, her older sister is Danielle, who is Lauren Lee Smith, and they have two friends with them of Maria, who is Rochelle Atties, and then Janet, who is Monica Delane. Now, they're planning to go to a party, so they're trying to find dates. Now, I think it's interesting is that Lori is the most reserved of everybody, and her friends are just really out to have a good time, but she ends up deciding that she's going to wear a costume of Little Red Riding Hood, and on her way out to the party, she get somebody who is very similar to the Big Bad Wolf, and it's an interesting reveal as to who that character is. And then my least favorite of the stories would probably be the prank that is done by a bunch of trick-or-treaters on a girl that is a little bit off, but she's very smart and knows all the history of Halloween. I just have a problem with what they end up doing, because I don't feel like they have enough time or would be able to pull off what they did. But I love the backstory that gets introduced with a school bus full of, I'm not really sure if they're mentally challenged or just demented children, and them being driven into the water by the bus driver. And I think it's pretty cool as how this story ends up playing back in with another one as well. But I really think that we have really good acting across the board here. Dylan Baker is, appears as a high school principal named Steven. I thought he fit the role perfectly, and I like some of the interesting reveals we get with him. Now, one of my other favorite stories is the Brian Cox one, where he plays an old ornery neighbor of Mr. Krieg, and he has a run-in with a creature by the name of Sam, who is Quinn Lord. And I just love this character of Sam, as I even have a t-shirt of him, and I've actually contemplated getting a tattoo of him as well. But we also have an interesting cast along with them, as if Leslie Bibb makes an appearance here. Of course, we had Anna Paquin, but we get Britt McKillop, which I thought she was a pretty solid actress in the prank one that she is in and i also think that the effects in this movie are pretty good i've already kind of talked about sam as i think he's an iconic creature now and his name is derived from sam hayne which is the ritual behind halloween i just love the burlap sack mask that he wears with the button sewn on for eyes and then the stitching across it gives an eerie looking smile i think the effects for the most part in this movie are really well done i know there's a little bit of cgi that kind of doesn't really necessarily hold up but there's not really enough of it for me to really kind of harp on it too much i think the editing is amazing to interweave these stories where when we're following one of them we'll see background characters that are in a different story and i think how they keep the chronologically and how we'll see something happen and then we'll hear that as another part of another one i just thought that was great and just perfect editing to keep everything flowing and the cinematography also works well in its favor. I thought the score of this was pretty fitting. I really like the Marilyn Manson version of Sweet Dreams that they play 
at one point in this. It just gives eerie vibes of that scene. And I think everything else just kind of fits where the movie wanted. So that's really all that I kind of wanted to delve into with this movie. It's just a fun anthology film, and it's definitely one that I would recommend if you've never seen this to watch it around Halloween, because that's a perfect time for it, just because it really just embodies that spirit, and I think it's one of the better ones for that. And Michael Daughtry just really does a great job at bringing these characters to life, incorporating all these different things into this, and I just think he's a director that I kind of hope he stays with the horror genre, because I think he's doing some great things, but I do know, I believe he did the new Godzilla film that came out, uh, last year so I mean he's going on to some big things but that's all I really wanted to cover here as I said so I'm going to come in and my rating came up the first time I watched it I was at an 8 but after this time I couldn't really find any major flaws with it so I came in with a 10 out of 10. And my next film for this week is The Strangers from 2008. This is written and directed by Brian Bertino. This stars Scott Speedman, Liv Tyler, and Gemma Ward. This is a horror thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a young couple staying in an isolated vacation home are terrorized by three unknown assailants. Now, this is a movie that I got to see in the theater back when it first came out. I was in college at the time and the trailers really caught my attention back when I was still watching trailers. I went to see it and really was spooked by the concept as well as how things played out. Then I ended up watching this again when I picked it up on DVD not too long after but it's also probably was in college when I watched that, and I haven't seen it since that time, and I finally got the chance as part of the Summer Challenge series for the 2000s over on the podcast Under the Stairs, you know, to give this another rewatch. Now, just to kind of fill in just a little bit more from the synopsis is that we have a couple of James Hoyt, who is Speedman, and his girlfriend is Kristen McKay, who is Liv Tyler. Now, they're going to his parents' vacation house, but it's interesting is that they were at a wedding earlier that night and he proposed and she refused his offer. But it's what I kind of like about this though is that she didn't refuse his offer because she doesn't love him. It's more of that she's not ready for marriage yet and it's just an awkward time for both of them because of everything that's went down. Now she really wants it to go back to the way things were where he's not sure that they can do that. So it kind of creates this uneasy tension, but for me, it also makes me help to connect with both of these characters because I've been in his position where I felt strongly about somebody who didn't feel the same way about me. And I've also can see from her point of view where I can't really blame her that she's not ready for that while he is. And then from there, things get pretty creepy as the first time they get a knock at the door and somebody's asking for Tamara and they open up the door and the light on the porch isn't working. And they tell him that she has the wrong house and that person just leaves. Now, later on, James decides that he's going to go to get cigarettes for Kristen knowing that she's not going to be able to sleep unless she is able to smoke. And what ends up happening is these, this person comes back to the house again and knocks at the door and it creeps her out. But we also see that they're, she's not alone and that she has two other people that are with her. And this kind of becomes an interesting little cat and mouse game where... The couple through fear and just trying to survive the night make some horrible decisions and they end up being, you know, stalked by these three people. But what I really like about this movie is we never really learn a whole lot about the killers. We never get to see their faces while our two protagonists do. And I really like this because it is an interesting little thing that usually if you see somebody like this face, you know you're not going to survive that. So it's kind of a depressing feeling for them. But I like that we don't ever get to see their face. And this movie's also prefaced with a stat about how there's crimes that can happen like this that they never end up getting solved. And I kind of like that because this is loosely based 
based on a crime scene where a couple was at a house kind of in a remote area like this movie and they were end up murdered and I don't think that case has ever been solved which I find to be also pretty interesting. What I also like about this movie is that we never actually learn who the killers are like I said and they just go by whatever mask they're wearing is there's doll face, man in mask which is like a burlap sack that he's wearing and then the other one is pinup girl and I just like that their reasoning behind doing this is that you know, you were home, which is just completely terrifying because there's no other rhyme or reason for them to be there. I think the cinematography is very well done. They really do a lot with the depth of the shot, where for me it's creepy when there's a moment where the man in the mask is behind Liv Tyler's character, and we can see it, but she can't. And this is something that just gets under my skin and really makes me feel uncomfortable. I thought the effects were really good as they're all practical and... Even like a gunshot wound that we get, the blood that we also get, everything like that. They don't go over the top with the effects, and I think that also works well in its favor. But something else that I really wanted to go over with this movie would be the soundtrack. I think we get the normal like tone-setting music that you would expect in a movie like this. But what I really like is they have a record player, so we're getting you know some diegetic music here. Where there's a moment where the record keeps skipping and playing the same verse over and over again and it just fits so well and it's so creepy and some of the other songs they play the lyrics that are being used correlate to something that's going on the screen i think that's just masterfully done there but this is a movie that i really like i know not everybody's as high on it as i am i'm pretty sure my boy uh, mr watson over on the watsy horror party show he's really high on this movie as well but i'm glad that this still held up it still made me completely uncomfortable to be watching this in the dark and I had to come in with a 9 out of 10 on this time around of viewing it. And then up next I have Lake Mungo from 2008. This is written and directed by Joel Anderson. This stars Rosie Trainer, David Pledger, and Martin Sharp. This is a drama horror mystery thriller from Australia. This is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, strange things start to happen after a girl is found drowned in a lake. Now, this was a film that I originally got turned on to as it was part of the After Dark 8 Films to Die For series. It was in the fourth year, and I have to admit, this is one that actually terrified me the first time I saw it. I don't mean to get your expectations up if you've never seen this, but there is just something in this film that gets under my skin, and not everyone will necessarily like it. This would be the fourth time that I've seen this now. After the original viewing, I did see it for a found footage selection during an October movie challenge that I was doing, and then I watched it again for a movie club challenge over on the podcast Under the Stairs, and oddly enough, this latest viewing was for the Summer Challenge series over on that podcast as well. Now, the synopsis is a little bit vague on what's going on here, but we have a family, and there's tragedy that has struck them, and it's told through a mockumentary-style and then we also have found footage of different home movies and things from like cell phones and stuff like that that is also incorporated in. Now, the family, the mother is June Palmer, who is trainer. Her husband is Russell, who is David Pledger. They have a son of Matthew, who is Martin Sharp. And they also have a daughter, Alice, who is Talia Zucker. Now, she goes missing while she is swimming with her brother at the local dam, and then there's a search for her. And then a few days later... Her body is found, and the mother is too distraught to look at it, so the father of Russell is the one that's going there to identify it, and he does you know, confirm that it is his daughter, but then it gets a little bit odd from here as the family starts to believe that their house could be haunted, and then they seek out a psychic by the name of Ray Kemi, who is Steve Jodrell, 
to help them see if they can communicate with their daughter. But then there's also some aspects where they think maybe their daughter might not be dead or that she could be dead and that she is haunting them. But we also learned is that she was harboring some secrets that not even her family knew. Now, this is an interesting film because it kind of feels like an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. And we kind of incorporate some twists and turns, some of them supernatural and some aren't. But I like how some things get introduced and then it gets debunked. But the whole time along the way, I just had this eerie feeling for this movie. And then I have to also say that the ending, as everything that leads up to it, starts to unnerve me. And then just the realism of how everything is presented actually helps there, as, in my opinion. Now, there was a moment that after one of my previous viewings, I did have an issue with one of the reveals that I could have done without. But upon this third and fourth viewing, I think that it does add something to this film. And I think it goes back to what I was saying as well, that... I know I have secrets that my parents don't know about, so if they're listening to this, you know, I do apologize there. But it's just kind of interesting that we think we know somebody, and I've talked about this before, but we don't actually know them as well as we think we do. And then something else that really works for this film is just how the acting comes off. I don't think anybody is really that great, and I think that's what adds to kind of my enjoyment here, is Trainer is interesting in that I believe her grief but there's just something about her I don't like and I think it's that she's clinging so hard that her daughter might not be dead and then also clinging to the fact that she is convinced that there has to be supernatural aspects here. But regardless, it's hard for me to kind of harp too much though because she is showing really good grief. Pledger is good as the grieving father in my opinion. I just feel bad for him and he questions things after some evidence comes out that he may have made a mistake. And then I also think Sharp is interesting because he does something that's really shady, but again, it's hard for me to blame him because he is dealing with grief in his own way. And it's kind of hard for me to fault him as well as to why he fakes some of the things that we get to see. And then we have, interesting is that Zucker in this movie is we never actually see her alive. So it's everything that is, you know, footage from things that were filmed by her family or just pictures or just things like that. And then we also, like I said, get some reveals with her that just turns the family upside down. Outside of that, there's not a whole lot in the way of special effects. We do get some tricks of footage, and I kind of like how it almost explains some of that. And we don't get a whole lot of the shaky camera that you see a lot of times in found footage films. We do get a little bit of that, especially when we get to see the footage taken from cell phones in this movie. And then outside of that, the only other thing would be we also get some effects on a entity that we kind of see as well as seeing the deceased body of Alice when she's pulled out of the water. I thought that looked pretty good. Outside of that, really, this the music for this movie I thought was done strategically. I know during this last viewing, during some of the more tense scenes, I really didn't notice it and it made me feel uncomfortable. But aside from that, it's really subdued and we, we don't really get any music at all. And I think that actually kind of works because it almost makes it feel kind of like a documentary that we are watching here where it's just more of like accent music so I do want to give credit there so it's outside of that I thought this was an interesting film it seems to be one that I like I said I've seen it four times now and I still really enjoy it and it still made me feel quite uncomfortable so I wouldn't say this is my favorite in this subgenre, but it's definitely up there as one that I find quite enjoyable despite the subject matter and I come in with an 8 out of 10 as my rating here and then I have Eden Lake from 2008 this is written and directed by James Watkins. This stars Kelly Riley, Michael Fassbender, and Tara Ellis. This is a horror thriller film from the United Kingdom. This is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being refusing to let anything spoil their romantic weekend break, a young couple confront a gang of loutish youths with terrifying, brutal consequences. 
Now, this is a film that I actually added to my Netflix list of DVDs back when I was in college, and I kept moving things ahead of it, but it wasn't until I got into podcasts and heard people talking about this film that it really made me want to finally check this out. Now, I've given it a second viewing thanks to the Summer Challenge series for the 2000s on the podcast Under the Stairs. Now, this one starts off where we get to see that Jenny, who is Kelly Riley, is a teacher, and she seems pretty good at her job, and she works with really young children. As she's getting out, she goes out to the vehicle to meet her boyfriend, who is Steve, portrayed by Fassbender, and they're going to head to a quarry that is flooded to spend the weekend. Now, it's a place that he's been before, and he's excited to take her there. And then while driving, I think this is interesting that we hear some news reports about how children growing up are a bit unruly, and there are even seems to be things that the government is trying to put into place to correct it. But what I really like is that we get some call-ins from school staff that are blaming the parents while the parents are blaming the schools. No one really seems to be taking ownership of this. And once they arrive up there, we get to see that the bed and breakfast they're staying out is a bit run down and there's a bunch of trashy people there. And we see that this is our first taste that the parenting around here might not be the greatest. And we end up getting a better look at this is that our couple ends up sneaking around a fence to go to this quarry where we get to meet a the group of hoods that they're gonna end up having their issues with where they're led by Brett who is Jack O'Connell and they end up you know having a dog who barks at Jenny and then the dog actually defecates on the beach nearby but the first real troubling thing that we get is that Brett bullies this other boy that they met as they were passing by of Adam who is James Gandhi now Steve doesn't get involved and doesn't want to while it bothers Jenny as a teacher and these hoods keep you know getting worse and worse as things are going and the more that Steve kind of calls out to them the more that they realize that they're getting under his skin and then it ends up getting to the point where the couple goes into town and they say something to a waitress and she gets really kind of defensive and we can kind of see that these kids around here that the parents kind of seem to take care of their own and we also see that there's some issues in their home life which are causing especially Brett to become a bully which he takes it out on his friends and then in turn the mob mentality makes them do things that they necessarily wouldn't always do now I will say this film I heard before coming in was brutal. I didn't think it was at first, but I do see as it goes on that it does get pretty brutal. And well, the first thing I like is that we have this concept that the kids are growing up unruly. Now we see part of this is the fact that they kind of grow up in a smaller bit of area where their parents are not that much better than them. So it's definitely something that they kind of picked up on from going from that. But they also, some of them seem to have rough home life, which they in turn take it out on others. And that's why they're bullies. And then, like I said, the mob mentality comes into it as well. It's also kind of interesting that recently I just watched Who Could Kill a Child as this becomes a decision that they have to make in order to survive as things keep getting worse and worse as there's a moment where something happens and Brett is not going to allow them to kind of get away with something even though it was an accident and that's where I kind of think that Brett is a monster in my eyes and I mean it's not all his fault as I do think that after we get to meet his father it's more of a nurture situation here and I also think it's really horrible that he ends up manipulating his friends to do things on camera so he has almost blackmail against them and they're kind of pressured into doing what they do even though they don't necessarily want to and then I mean going from there is I also like the change that we get with Jenny at first she's just a nice woman and she's a teacher you know she works with children but then the more and more that things go from being just annoying to being criminal to being you know straight up psychopathic we see that the change has to come in her as she has to lose her humanity to survive and then i also like that the dirtier she becomes 
she almost looks like a monster in the end, and that's when she crosses the line that you can't come back from, and the ending is just completely bleak, and I really enjoy it, but it's not one of those ones that you feel good after seeing it. And that also will take me to the acting, which I think Riley is does an absolutely amazing job. She's really our lead here, and I just feel horrible for the things that she has to go through, but her performance was great. I thought Fassbender was solid, and I, he's such a good actor that I like that he takes a secondary role in this movie. He's really the catalyst of the dark path of everything that we go down here, but what's also interesting that physically he's bigger than every single one of these teens, and it's just kind of interesting how you know that ends up playing with everything. And then O'Connell is someone that I really despise, but I love his performance, especially somebody of his age. He's such a psychopath and a manipulator. I would say that the rest of the group does good for what was needed. They don't really need to necessarily kind of stand out, but they do kind of just fall into that mob mentality. And the same can be said for the parents that we meet in different spots as well as near the end. The effects, I thought, were really good that they went practical here. They do look quite real along with the blood that we get as well. And there's a moment later on with fire that I'm glad that they didn't do CGI. They did some really good things with the cinematography, which I think that really helps and makes things, you know, tense as well. So I do think there's some good social commentary here and it's pretty relevant as well especially with certain people that I've kind of encountered in my life, as well as just some of the things you see on social media from people that are supposed to be, you know, adults. I do like how they play with, uh, you know, loss of humanity as well as, you know, the tension rising up there. I just think this is a good movie. Not necessarily one that I can recommend to everybody because this does kind of feel like exploitation type cinema. So if you can handle a little bit more realistic violence and kind of effects from that, I would definitely give this a viewing as it's not the most brutal film that I've seen, but definitely ones I couldn't recommend to most mainstream fans, but I came in with an 8.5 out of 10 on this movie. And those are all the mini reviews that I have for this week, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. This letter reached me in a distant part of the country. Frederick, my dear friend. His eyes were tortured in faint light. I dread the events of the future. I began to question my worthiness of being present for my friend, who now existed in a world of which I held no key. I speak of my tenderly beloved sister, Madeline. Her decease will leave me as the last of the ancient race of the Ushers. And you have not seen it? Then you shall. And for my first featured review is going to be Fall of the House of Usher from 1948 technically is when it was made. Now this is directed by Ivan Barnett. This is written by Dorothy Cat and Kenneth Thompson and it is adapted from the story by Edgar Allan Poe. This stars Gwen Watford, Kay Tendendieter, and Irving Steen. This is a horror film from the United Kingdom. This is currently sitting on a 4.6 on IMDb, 
and a 2.6 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, as a traveler arrives at the Usher Mansion to visit his old friend Roderick, and then upon his arrival he discovers that Roderick and his sister Madeline have been afflicted with a serious malady. Now this was a version of the movie I didn't know actually existed. It popped up when I was looking for movies that were released in 1950 in that exact year. Now I was a bit confused as IMDb has this listed as 48 like I said, which I was wondering if it got a release in the United States in 1950, which I did find some trivia that states this was first shown in the United Kingdom on a floating release in 1950 when it was given an H certification by the BBFC. Much abridged print, the 70 minute to the 39 minute cut was released in 56 when the BBFC gave the revised cut of the picture an S certificate in that year as well. So it looks like this movie was made in 48. It didn't come out until 50, which is why it is being included here. So I am going to go ahead and treat this as the 1950 film, and that is why it's going to be you know, part of this journey through the aughts segment. Now we start this movie with a man parking his car, and I'm not going to lie, I thought this movie was going to be a more updated version to be in kind of like the 1940s, 1950s. And we see him go into a club of sorts. Inside, they've all shared a story, and it sounds like they're gearing up to hear another one. Now, one of the men doesn't like horror, but his friend insists that they should listen to the Edgar Allan Poe story of the fall of the House of Usher, and he ends up finding the book on the shelf in this club that contains this short story, and then goes about reading it to his friends. Now, it begins starting where we're following Jonathan, who in this version is Irving Steen, as he rides to the Usher mansion. He states that he hasn't made this journey in a while, but remembers it almost as if it's second nature. The trees seem to be trying to stop him, yet he continues on. It is there that he meets with his old friend Roderick, which in this version of the story, he is being portrayed by Ten Dieter. Now, the movie also introduces us here to Madeline, who is Watford. While she's playing the piano, someone brings her a glass of milk, but at this point, we don't see who that person is. She does drink it, plays a little bit more, and then ends up going to bed, and the shot lingers on the glass after she does. So this is where I'm immediately getting the idea that she is being poisoned or is being drugged of some sort. Now, this is where things get a bit confusing to me. It seems like it goes farther back, so we have a flashback into a flashback is how I'm taking this, to fill us in on the curse that has befallen the House of Usher. Roderick learns from Dr. Cordwell, who is Vernon Charles, that the curse is due to his father killing a guy. Roderick's father commanded that they never go through the marshes or the forest behind the house, and Dr. Cordwell reveals the reason is that there's a temple back there with torture devices in it. Madeline overhears this information as she is eavesdropping outside of the door, and then follows as Dr. Cordwell takes Roderick to this temple. Inside is where a horrible discovery is made. Their mother was having an affair, and their father discovered this. He killed the man who she was having the affair with, but not before he put a curse upon the family and the house. Now, there is a hag who is living in the temple, portrayed by Lucy Pavey, who is actually Roderick and Madeline's mother. Her face from grief and pain has morphed into a hideous-looking, almost monstrous look. Now, she is protecting the head of her lover, but it needs to be burned in order to lift the curse. Dr. Cordwell wants Roderick to reach out to one of his friends to help them and wants to know if he has somebody who's reliable because the hag is protecting the head like I was saying, so they need to attack her as well as take the head. And the woman is very strong. She won't kill you and she'll pretty much leave you alone, but if you try to touch her face or like this is trying to do is prevent people getting to the head, she will lash out and attack and she is quite strong. 
Now, Roderick refuses to involve Jonathan and decides that they're going to get Richard, who is Tony Powell Bristow, to help them. Things don't go as planned, though, and it's actually quite comical watching it all play out. And then Madeline is deteriorating physically. Now, can the curse be broken before it is too late? Now, I've read this short story from Poe before, and if memory serves, I've read it for class in college as well as just in my own leisure. It is probably one of my favorites, and it's actually one that has stuck with me, so I can be a bit more critical when it comes to movies like that are adapting this material. I think this does a well enough job there. It isn't an overly long story, so it makes sense that you really, if you're going to flesh it out, you need to add more material, which we do get here. Having said that, I do like what is added to this movie. This idea that the curse has a potential to be broken intrigues me. I've always taken the story to be that there's issues with either incest or Madeline and Roderick are deteriorating due to their parents actually being brother and sister and just the abnormalities that can come from an incestuous relationship or that it could be this, they've lived in isolation for so long that they are starting to break down mentally which is having issues on them physically. This movie is stating though there's a curse that was put upon them and that if they don't break it, it would mean ruin for them. I'm on board with this idea. My issue is that we get this subplot for about 10 minutes or so and we never really come back to it. It does slightly play into the ending, but I still just wanted more. And this movie introduced us to something that I was also wondering is Dr. Cordwell poisoning Madeline? Or is he just drugging her because that she does have some sort of condition that he's trying to, you know, kind of alleviate issues with it? It is even questioned at the end, which makes me feel better about my thinking on this because when the guys are talking, they're like, one of them literally asks if they think she's being poisoned. It could be that, or is he doing this on his own, or is Roderick asking him to do this as he's descending into madness, and is he using the Munchausen syndrome of keeping her sick so that she needs him? Now, I do know part of this is that living in this house out in the middle of nowhere could be having you know adverse effects on both of their, not only their mental state, but actual physical state. And as I've said, I've always wondered if the ushers, who tend to be born as twins if memory serves, and they're usually of the opposite sex, have they been marrying one another? And as another possible explanation as to what is going on here. But like I said, this isn't fleshed out in the movie, and I don't, and I know for a fact it's not fleshed out in the novel, so that's some of the things that just kind of makes me wonder. There's really not a lot to this movie, though, aside from the built-in story and what is added for this version. The movie has a runtime of about 70 minutes, and I think that with what they introduced, they could have fleshed this out a bit more. So despite the short runtime, I have to admit, I did find myself bored. And it's really a shame, though, to be honest, because they do introduce some good concepts here. Taking this next to the acting, no one really stood out to me. I'd have to give most of the credit to Ten Dieter, as he gets most of the screen time. He plays his role fine, in my opinion, and I like that we can see his mental health deteriorating as things go on. Watford is fine in her role as well, but what I like here is that she seems more normal, but then we see there's something up with the milk that she's being given, and as the movie goes on, her health goes downhill. So it again, makes me always wonder if what is going on there. I don't necessarily trust Charles's character of the doctor, so that means I liked his performance enough that it made me question him. Steen is fine in the tiny role that he really has. He doesn't really add a whole lot, if I'm going to be honest, except that he's in the book. And then the look of Pavey was solid to help round out this movie, in my opinion. So since I talked about the look of the hag here, I'll go over briefly the effects of the movie. Being that this is 1948 when it was made, they didn't really have a whole lot to work with and didn't necessarily need a lot though either. The lightning we see does look of the era and I have a soft spot there. The house at the ending I could tell was a model, but again, I like the practical approach. Aside from that, 
would be, you know, the look of the severed head in the temple, which I liked. And we also get that image superimposed at one point over things, which worked. Then there's the look of the hag, which was creepy. And aside from that, the cinematography was on par for the era and was quite stationary as well. So now with that said, this isn't as good as the Roger Corman adaptation that I have seen of the same story. I liked what they tried to do by adding a subplot, but I just didn't take it far enough for me to, you know, fully be invested. They do well in bringing to life the story from Poe. The acting is fine across the board. It has a low running time, which in this case does work against it, as I still found it boring and there's a missed opportunity to do really, you know, make this a solid version of the story. The effects were of the era and the soundtrack didn't really stand out to me. I'm not going to lie though, I just wasn't the biggest fan here, and I would say that this is just a below average for me. A bit more could have tweaked it and got it over that threshold, but it just wasn't enough for me. So my rating here is a 4.5 out of 10. And then before I close this out, I just had a few more bits of trivia here, as if this is Gwen Watford's movie debut. This is the only screen appearance of both Kay Denteter and Irving Steen, who portrays Roderick Usher and his friend Jonathan respectively, as well as Vernon Charles, who plays Dr. Cordwell. Watford, however, makes the first of many film and television appearances as Madeline. Much of the dialogue has been added in post-production, which kind of surprises me. Now, no actor or actress in this movie besides Watford ever appeared in another film, and it kind of makes sense as to some of my issues as well. So that's really all I wanted to go into for this movie. Like I said, there's really not a whole lot that I can do, so there's no point for a spoiler section. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer for my second featured review. When was the last time you spoke to her? It's been a few weeks. Gran? Mom? Mom? She called me a few weeks ago. I think she was scared. She thought someone was coming into the house. Do you know where you were, Mum? I suppose I went out. What's this? I was on the property when your grandfather inherited it. His mind wasn't there in the end. You can't put Gran in a home. She can't live on her own anymore. She has to be watched. Everything all right, Gran? I thought this was where it got in. Who? Whoever was coming into the house. Mum, what is it? It's here. Under the bed. There's nothing under the bed, Mum. Will you check for me? I can see you. This house seems unfamiliar.
Welcome back, and for my second featured review on this episode is going to be Relic from 2020. This is directed and co-written by Natalie Erica James, and her co-writer that worked with her is Christian White. This stars Emily Mortimer, Robin Nevin, and Bella Heathcote. This is a drama horror film from Australia and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, a daughter, mother, and grandmother are haunted by a manifestation of dementia that consumes their family's home. Now, with this movie, I didn't really hear about it until I saw that it was getting some buzz on social media. Some people that I do really respect in the horror community were speaking very highly of it. And it was interesting because I was going to watch another movie from 2020 for this week here. But I thought this one fit better with the 1950 version of The Fall of the House of Usher. And so when Jamie said she was interested in giving this a view, we decided we would watch this together. Now we start this movie with what looks like Christmas lights. It shows us a bathtub that's overflowing and then to a naked woman. It then shows us a figure all in black pop up in the background. Now that's something I actually want to point out here is that this movie does very well with their depth of field where we get to see things that or in the foreground and we might have things that are out of focus in the background and that is something that kind of is pretty eerie but I'll get into that here shortly a little bit more than what I've kind of already said now this movie then takes us to Kay who is Mortimer with her daughter Sam who is Heathcote they're heading out to a house in a small town now this is actually the house that Kay grew up in now they're looking for Kay's mother now they break into the house but there's no sign of the elderly woman they check around and then eventually have to involve the police in a search of the woods Kay then begins to have a nightmare of a cabin and an old man inside of it. He is being consumed by what looks like mold where we see him end up pass away. We then learn later that this cabin that she is seeing was what was originally on this property that the house now sits. Now there's a stained glass window that is in the front door that was also on the front door of the cabin and it was preserved because I mean it's stained glass and I believe it's probably pretty original and everything like that so they didn't want to just discard it along with the rest of the house. And then as if nothing happened, Edna, who is Nevin, shows back up. She's making tea that morning and Kay comes into the kitchen and asks where she's been. Edna seems annoyed that she's being asked and it is pretty much just ignored when Sam comes into the room and gives her a hug. This then becomes a struggle of Kay wanting to help her mother but her mother resisting. She doesn't want to give up her house or her way of life and then Sam offers an alternative and Kay struggles with what doing with what's best for her life as well as what would be best for her mother. There's also this entity that Edna keeps seeing. Now, is it real or is it something else? Now, that's where I'm going to leave my recap as that gets you up to speed with what the movie is really about without going into spoilers. Now, what I really dug about this movie, though, is the underlying allegory that it is trying to relay. Now, I'll admit that I did read an interview of the director slash co-writer of this movie of Natalie Erica James, so I'm going to incorporate aspects that were relayed in that into my analysis. I did pick up on some of the things, but there was more that I didn't correlate that did help me to deepen what I did like about this movie. The first thing that I really wanted with this movie would be that we have three generations of women in this family. Edna is living alone since her husband passed away. She's dealing with Alzheimer's and has to leave notes for herself to remind her of mundane tasks of her daily life. This could be including things like take your pills, turn off the faucet, just things of those nature. Now it's difficult at the age where she wants to continue her way of life, but she's losing that ability. And I also think there's something interesting that gets said to Sam in, in this movie where she says that the house feels like it's larger than what it was when her husband was still alive. 
And this kind of plays into something that we get later in the movie. We then have Kay. She's a busy woman that has a life of her own. She can't babysit her mother, and I don't really like saying it that way, but her mother does need more intensive care because, you know, she is mobile and able to do things, but with where she is mentally, she really can't be living on her own anymore. But it is a difficult decision, but she's looking at nursing homes to send her mother to. This causes her to butt heads with Sam, who is willing to, you know, live and take care of her grandmother, as she is no longer going to college and no longer wants to, and she's currently working at a bar. Her mother wants what's best for her, but she's doing this in this motherly way where it comes almost as nagging and interjecting her thoughts into how her daughter should be living her life. So I do like incorporating that because this is kind of a generational thing that we're dealing with here. Now, without going into spoilers here yet, as I'm going to do a spoiler section later on, we have the entity that keeps popping up. I'm not going to lie, I thought what they did here was pretty effective in having it being seen by us and not the characters in the story. I know not everyone is a fan of this, but it is creepy for me for sure. What I also like is that they play with other dimensions a bit as well. There's a closet where Edna believes that it started this like haunting that she's dealing with. Sam goes into it and we see that it leads her into a hallway into a mirror of the house that is in worse shape. It is covered in mold and it seems like that world is closing in on her as well as it's bleeding into our own. Now since I've already moved into it a little bit, I thought the effects of this movie were well done. Everything was done practically for the most part from what I could tell. The allegory of the mold that we are seeing was one that I really dug and if there was CGI, it was used pretty seamless here in my opinion. We don't actually get to see it growing for the most part. It's kind of we'll look at something and then we'll see later on that it has, you know, kind of overtaken that portion of it. The entity that we see creeped me out as well. Now there was from the interview that I saw that said that there are influence of Asian cinema. And I know while watching this, I looked at Jamie and said that I got a vibe of Juan or like Ringu. So that does make a whole lot of sense as being, you know, something that they were, that she was pulling from. And I do have to give credit to the cinematography as well. It was shot in a way where I enjoyed it. And I like I said, the depth of perception was really good. And I enjoyed the use of mirrors here. We get to see characters that are in them. And this also plays in with the other world as an allegory as well, that we are seeing, you know, a mirror of our own world, just a darker one, kind of like something you would see in like um, Silent Hill. And I know that is even pulling from Asian influences as well. The next thing that I want to take this to was the acting of the movie. This is really a cast of just three characters with some others in support. Mortimer was really good as this middle generation here that has her own life and is trying to do what is right by her mother that raised her. She's also just a solid actress in general, and I'm not sure I've ever seen her in a bad role to be honest. Nevin is really good as the older woman as well. I love how natural she plays this as someone who has Alzheimer's. She's just a one person and then, you know, different in the next, which is in line with what I've heard about this condition. And I mean, a lot of it is there's just agitation about not being able to do the things that they used to be able to do. So I really like incorporating that. Heathcote is interesting as well in this role. She does some investigation and I also like that she's not jaded by the world as of yet. So now with that said, I really dug what this movie was doing. I will say that I had my expectations a little bit high as I heard how scary this was. I even braced Jamie for it because she's pretty susceptible to some jump scares and just being freaked out in general. I did find that this had creepy parts, but definitely wasn't as scary as I was expecting. That's not to say that I was disappointed or anything like that, because I know that I have to keep my expectations in check. 
and I know that people had said some things, but I think that this really just has some good concepts, and I dig the underlying allegories that were used as well. The effects were good, and I thought the acting was as well. The soundtrack fit for what was needed, and the use of sounds and the things in the movie really did help to make it even creepier, in my opinion. So overall, I would say this was a movie that is good. I will probably try to get this another viewing for the year end to see if this is a contender for my year end list. So far it is, as I was already looking at where it would fall on movies that I've seen already. I was kind of trying to figure out where I would go with my rating here. I end up coming in at the moment with an 8.5 out of 10. I'm not sure if it's going to fall back down to an 8 or not. I don't know if I'm going to go any higher than an 8.5, but that's where I'm sitting at it with right now. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is I'm going to go into a spoiler section. I know I haven't done this for a while. I'll have it time-coded if you want to skip over and watch the movie before seeing what I thought in the spoiler section. But like I said, I'll have it time-coded if you want to skip over that part or if you just want to power through. Either way, you'll be able to know where the next sections of this episode will be in, but that spoiler section will start now. Now, the truth of what is getting here is that Edna has dementia. Now, this isn't new as this is in the synopsis. What is, though, is the entity that we're seeing is a manifestation of her disease attacking her and trying to take over her body. Now, I found this to be a rather interesting as James, was, who is the writer and director of this, was dealing with grief of her grandmother, who dealt with the same type of ordeal and what decisions needed to be made there. To take this even further, I believe that the hallway that Sam goes down is supposed to be a representation of the mind of Edna. This hallway is getting smaller and smaller as she's going and trying to find her way out. And this other darker house is where she was missing for that time that when they got there, that she had been stuck over in this side as we see a bunch more post-it notes over there trying to remind her of things. When Edna goes back in, she completely has succumbed to the disease. She isn't the same person as when she went in. I also like that there's a bruise on her chest that when she found it earlier in the movie, but it is spreading, and we see her at a point later in the movie where she's stabbing herself and pulling her skin off. Now, Kay is trying to stop her from doing this, but she can't get into the bathroom. And this is another scene where we see it in a mirror, which I thought was kind of a cool thing they did there. This is her trying to stop it, but finally succumbing to it because she just can't anymore. The last bit did make me tear up a little bit as Kay and Sam find their way back, as well as the new Edna. As they go to leave, Edna says Kay's name. This causes her to stay as her great-grandfather, who is the person that we saw in the cabin earlier in the movie, passed away alone and pretty much everybody was avoiding him. Now, Kay helps remove the skin from her mother as she won't allow her to die alone like that. She even locks Sam out as she doesn't want her to, you know, be stuck with all of this and that this isn't her burden to bear. And as I was saying, Kay removes the skin from her mother and comes to term with this new version of her mother that is a monstrous type beast because she's no longer that same person, but she is accepting it. As I said, she won't let her die alone. Sam then ends up joining them, and then we see as all three of them are laying in the bed together and comforting each other, that Kay has a mark on her back, signifying this ordeal with Carrie on with the new generation, as it is an interesting movie dealing you know, with grief and the struggles of someone changing due to the dementia that they are dealing with. Now that's what I really wanted to kind of delve into here. I think it's a really interesting story, and this is something that my own grandfather passed away of Alzheimer's, so I like kind of seeing how this plays out. It is still kind of a sad thing like that. And I really think they do a pretty well job. Like I said, it's not as scary as I was thinking, but it's just one of those movies that just has a really good story and just touches me in a way where I can really get behind that. But what I'm going to go ahead and do now is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
Now to close out the show, I want to thank you once again for coming on this journey with me. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past episodes, you can do that at Reviews of the Dead, which is horrorreview.webnode.com. If you want to add me on Facebook, you can do so at David Michigan Garrett Jr. If you want to add me on Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. Letterbox, David OSU. On Instagram, it's David OSU87. If you want to download the FlickChat app, you can download that on iOS or Android, and my join code on there is Journey with a Cinephile. And then the last thing I would ask also would be if you could go ahead and hit subscribe if you haven't already, just so that way anytime a new episode comes out, you won't miss that. And if there's a way to rate or review, if you could do that, just so I can kind of get an idea of anything that I'm doing that you like or anything that I'm not, just so that way I can make this the best show possible, that would be greatly appreciated. Now for episode number 38, what I think I'm going to go ahead and do on that one is I'm going to watch... This time around, I promise I'm going to watch Blood Quantum, and that will be the 2020 release that will be on that episode. And then aside from that, I'm also going to be moving into the 1960s. And the movie that I'm going to watch is one that I've never really seen or heard of called Horrors of Spider Island. As I said, don't know a whole lot about that one, but those are going to be the two featured reviews. And outside of that, I'm going to try to finish up the 2008 films that are going to be over on the podcast Under the Stairs for you know the people council duty over there and then i'm going to try to watch the last two 1940s films as well and prep for episode number 40 which is going to feature the top films from 1940 1950 only because there was you know just the one episode that i could or the one movie that i could find for that year on that but aside from that i don't really have anything else so i'm gonna say whatever you do today i hope you have a great time doing it i want to thank you for joining me And this is David Garrett Jr., your tour guide, signing off.